I'm going to read our scripture lesson, then dismiss kids. If you are, um, or you have been with us, we're in the gospel according to John. We're going through John verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We're in chapter 6 still. Uh, a lot of verses here, a lot of content, so we're just going to walk through this together. We're in verse uh, 41 of John. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the gospel according to John. He's not John the Baptist, he is John the Apostle. Eyewitness of the life and ministry of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection as well. So we are hearing first eyewitness account of the life of Christ. So turn with me to John 6, chapter 6, verse 41. I'm reading from the ESV. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to to you, whoever believes has eternal life, for I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so does everyone who feeds on me. He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread their fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things while in the synagogue he taught in Capernaum. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. Let's just pray one more moment if we can. Father, these words are penetrating. These words are hard. I ask that your spirit would soften us to hear from you. I would get out of the way. That we would see Christ. We would love him. We would eat of him and drink of him. And receive eternal life and nourishment from him. May we see him as the one true and living God in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids, you're dismissed. I just felt like I needed to just pray a little bit more. Kids, you're dismissed with Children's Church. We're in, we're in John 6. We're in the middle of this long discourse where Jesus now is explaining what took place a day ago up on that mountain on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd of wonder seekers had gathered, if you remember, and Jesus was ministering to them and teaching them and healing all kinds of, of diseases. When it came time for supper, all the McDonald's were closed, and the Wendy's, and there was no food. The Bible said that Jesus had compassion on them, and, out of, and fed 5,000 men, not including women and children, from two fish and five loaves of bread. He fed 
10,000 about, roughly. We noted that over the past two weeks that this miracle took place around the celebration of the Passover feast. The Passover, the entire deliverance of Egypt, excuse me, of Israel from Egypt to the promised land that was led by Moses was a defining moment for the Jewish people. It was that rescue that defined them as God's people. So when the bread came down, when Jesus takes this bread from this boy and creates out of nothing this bread and this fish and feeds them, it was, it was pointing, it was revealing, it was another Exodus-like event because God's people were wandering in the desert, if you remember, and God fed them with manna from heaven. We said even that the walking on water, that Jesus walks on water in verse 16 through 21, having the authority over the water was an echo of this Passover event. How Moses parted the Red Sea, Jesus has authority over the sea. And as Israel was rescued from the water through the Red Sea, Jesus rescues his disciples. Jesus begins to break down what this miracle is feeding in verses 1 through Let's see, 1 through, chapter 6, 1 through 15. And he starts teaching them in verse 26 that the miracle of feeding pointed to him. It pointed to the fact that he is the one that we are to trust and to believe and to have faith in the person of Jesus Christ. He tells them in verse 26 through 29 that what God requires for us to have eternal life is to believe in Jesus Christ. Sola fide was the cry of the reformers. The Apostle Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. Then in verse 30 through 34, all the people are gathered in the synagogue, and they're back to this show me a sign, Jesus, like Moses gave us bread every day for for a long time. You gave us bread one day. Dance for us. Do something spectacular for us. Show us a miracle. Jesus says, you know what? Moses did not give you that bread from heaven. It was my father who sent bread from heaven. And I now have been sent by the father as the true bread from heaven. And because they were so wrapped up in the natural, they were so wrapped up in the physical, they were so wrapped up in their earthly appetites, their stomachs, they missed the point. So Jesus says to plainly, chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then last week we wrapped it up in verses 37 through 40 under the heading Unbreakable Preservation. Love verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. I will not cast them out. I'm not going to lose any. For it is the Father's will. It is the very will of my Father That whoever looks on the Son and believes in the Son will have eternal life. So we said last week that because it is the will of the Father, the will of the Father was that Jesus would would grant, would give, and would, would keep those that were given to him by the Father, that if he lost any, it would actually be Jesus not fulfilling the will of the Father. He would have failed the Father if he loses any. That's unbreakable preservation for the believer who's trusting in Jesus. He will not lose any of us. 
When we get to John 17, Jesus, on, 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 right before he goes to the cross, is going to say, Father, glorify me, for I've glorified you on the earth, having accomplished all, have accomplished the work, all the work that you gave me to do. Jesus doesn't fail the Father. And here we pick up the narrative. We're in the synagogue. We're in Capernaum. Jesus is teaching. Verse 59 tells us that's where he was, in the synagogue. Jesus is teaching us. I believe, if we could just wrap our head around this this picture, I believe Jesus is in the synagogue, as it says. There are some people that have come to the synagogue from the mountain the day before. They had followed him to the other side of the sea and walked with Jesus into Capernaum. So there was people there that were fed on the mountaintop, miraculously, miraculously, they were there in the synagogue. His 12 disciples were there. The apostles were with him. And the leaders of the synagogue have all gathered. So I think there's a big crowd. Now we're going to look at our verses that we have today under three headings. Sovereign grace, sacrificial offering, and satisfying food. Okay? That's, that's where we're going. Sovereign grace, sacrificial offering, and satisfying food. Verse 41. Jesus just finished saying, I I, I have them. Verse 41, they're grumbling. The Jews grumbled. Really? Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, come on. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So he, they're, they're grumbling. It's a byproduct of Jesus saying, I, I've come down from heaven. And, and you know, I'm kind of glad they picked it up. He already said it three times. He's going to say it three more times. And they're finally grumbling about it. And they're like, wait a minute. We know this guy. We, we've seen him before. We know his mom. We know his dad. How can he say he's like the man that fell down from heaven? We know his parents. Like, what right does he have to claim that he's some sort of nobler man than Moses or has a divine origin that he came down from heaven. They were either ignorant of the virgin birth or, because this is what it's pointing to, I've come down from heaven, pointing to the virgin birth, or they just refuse to believe the story. We've been seeing throughout this book that Jesus reveals himself in his true identity and it goes right over people's heads. They're in darkness, John says. They don't want to refuse to come to the light. May that be none of us here. May we all be hungry to eat of the bread of life, to be open, our eyes open, to see who Jesus really is. He's not just simply a carpenter's son. You know, the one that you saw running around in Hebrew school with the other boys. The young lad that sat in the synagogue on Saturday and maybe on a different day played kickball. He says, I'm from heaven. They're like, man, this guy makes it sound like he comes from God. He's a crazy Nazarite. But Jesus presses on. Now, the next verses in 40, excuse me, 43 and following um, is one of the reasons why we like to do expository preaching. We go through books of the Bible. Because these are verses nobody wants to touch. We have to deal with it. Causes division even in some churches. But we're going to look at it in its context. Look what he says in verse 43. Do not grumble. Jesus says, stop grumbling. Jesus says, listen, I hear what you guys are doing. I see the grumbling you're doing. And if you think that the two of you, the five of you, the 20 of you, 
Jewish leaders can get together and somehow figure out and grumble among yourselves and debate and try to figure out something that only God can reveal to you, you're wasting your time. You're not going to be able to sort things like that out on your own. In fact, if you're going to continue grumbling, you're going to miss the grace of God. Look at verse 44. No one, no one can come to me unless... No one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. And then he says, I will raise him up on the last day. Now this kind of language in Scripture is what the Bible calls predestination, big word, or effectual call, two very big words. Okay, election, predestination, all biblical words. In fact, Romans 8.28, it says, and we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So predestination, effectual call, elections, deeply rooted in the Bible, deeply rooted in the history of God's work of salvation throughout Scripture, going way back to Genesis. We did a sermon series, uh, I think it's two years ago this summer. No, it's had to be longer than that. Go on our website. It's called Because You Asked. We took questions from the congregation and we preached. There's, there's, there's sermons in there about election, predestination, effectual call. If you're not quite sure exactly what I'm talking about, I'm going to hit it a little bit. But you go on our website, you can download it and listen to it. The word to predestinate means to mark out beforehand. It emphasized that from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, the the confession says, God freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. In salvation, it means that those who come to Jesus are not based on a foreseen, because it's already marked out, any foreseen or moral obedience on their part, but actually God grants and gives faith and repentance to each individual that he is drawing, that he is wooing to his son. So those whom God sovereignly called to himself, he brings to himself through the power of the Spirit this willingness to accept Christ and what we call the effectual call, where God gives life. Paul told young Timothy, very clear, God saved us and called us To a holy calling. Not because of your works. It's not something you did. But because of his own purpose and grace. So he called us, not none we did, by his purpose, by his grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Holy calling is not that general calling, gospel calling, a general invitation We're talking about the calling of God that regenerates the heart. We're talking about the call of God that renews the heart. We're talking about that calling of God that grants us spiritual life. According to Paul, this calling is for our salvation by God's own purposes and grace. And that call was prompted not by our good deeds, but by God's good pleasure before the ages began. And this gift, this this, this sovereign gift of grace, in our calling is his work. Therefore, it can't be earned. And therefore, it can't be forfeited. Here's the problem, especially in America. We want, we want to be independent people. We are prideful people. We don't want to be completely dependent on anyone. 
people think they can come and they can go and they have their own, you know, they're, 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 they're you know, separated from God and that they could do whatever they want. And it's really pride. And Jesus assures us here that that's impossible. When we come to faith in Christ, that day and that time in history, it was not due by your work, by your power, but for his purpose and his power. It was the work of God. And some people say, well, then God makes us robots. I hear it all the time. No, he does not. No, he does not. The Bible is clear that we make real choices. We make real decisions. The call of God, this drawing of God, does not violate our will. It liberates our will. The calling of God, this opening of our hearts, this renewing work of God, this, this spirit drawing that sees, helps us, to, and makes us, and helps us, I should say, see the glory of Christ, is not violating our will as we're robots. It liberates our will. When that day come when you say, I, I chosen Christ, I bowed my head, I remember that day I was six, I was ten, I was in, nurse, I was in uh, Sunday school, I was at VBS, I remember that day. It was real. It was real. But it's not part of the work of salvation, it's the result of it. Look at our text. Look at, now, if you have a Bible you like to write in your Bible, I hope you do. Circle verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 37 and 44, kind of the same thing. Now, verse down, look down in your Bibles at verse 64 and 65. There are some of you who do not believe. Jesus, Jesus knew from the beginning those who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. Okay? Some of you won't believe. Some of you just will not. In fact, there's a betrayal coming. There's, there's someone who will betray me. We know who that is, right? Judas. And he said this, verse 65, this is why I told you. Back in verse 44, this is why I told you. Because there are unbelievers. There's Judas. There's the traitors among you. This is why I told you that no one can come unless he is granted to him, me by the Father. Verse 65. Do you see what Jesus is saying? There are those who don't believe. There's Judas, the traitor among us, and the reason why I told you that you're not coming unless, someone's draw, unless my father's drawing you is because those are being drawn and, and Judas is not. Judas is not being drawn in that same way. That's why I'm making the point. That's why I'm telling you. God has granted this, this drawing. Those who would come to know him, those who would come, he says in verse 37 and 44, will come to know Jesus through the drawing of the Father. He left Judas in his ways. He left Judas in his rebellion. He leaves Judas in his greed. And never think that simply because God, I hear this all the time too, that somehow God is not, did not draw Judas the way he drew others, is somehow he's not unfair. That's not true either. It's called justice. We live it every day. In our court systems, in our culture, in our society, it would fall apart if not for justice. And just like a good Bible teacher, Jesus presses on verse 45. Just in case you guys are not catching it, he's saying, look at verse 45. He says, it is written in the prophets. It's in your Old Testament. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he was from God. He has seen the Father. 
Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah talks about a new heart. Ezekiel talks about a new heart, this new covenant that God is going to make. He's writing in our laws in our hearts. But in Isaiah 54, God is addressing the Old Testament prophet through Isaiah. God is addressing the restored city of Jerusalem. And he, and he writes in Isaiah 54, 13. All your sons will be taught by the Lord, and great will be your children's peace. He's talking about the remnant that's in captivity going back into the land, and and how that remnant going back is a picture of this healed community, this this new creation, this this eschatology, or this, this consummation of the end ages, when God's people will live in a healed creation, and when God's people are in this healed creation, they all will be taught by God, everyone. He's talking about everyone that ever lived. No, he's talking about God's people in this healed creation. And Jesus is saying, listen, the dawning of that is, is because I'm here. And the Father is drawing people to me. And he's pointing to this Old Testament truth. Hard, I know. I remember months and months and months not sleeping, reading, reading, praying, reading over this truth. John Piper, I just want to point out five things. When you grasp this reality that is the work of God, five things will happen. I'll just, you can jot them down. Talk about them in community group. Number one, it's humbling. (laughs) It's humbling. It is the work of God. If not for him drawing me, I'd be utterly lost, separated from God from all eternity. Something's very wrong if someone understands this truth that the work of salvation is the work of God and they are prideful. It should completely humble us. Number two, we should be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. I mean, it's a gift that God has granted if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, how, how could we not be thankful and gratitude and have gratitude in our hearts? Number three, there's assurance. If, if salvation, as Jonah says, salvation is of the Lord, is the work of God, as we see in this text, then Jesus got me. We sing that song, I cling to Christ, but I love the refrain. It's like, no, but bottom line, it's because Christ clings to me. If my salvation was dependent upon me holding on to Jesus' hand, I am in great trouble. Number four, we have hope. Number four, we have hope. If my if my evangelism, if my sharing and demonstrating, declaring the gospel to others was, was solely on man's choice or man's character or the way in which I put my word just perfectly, I mean, we're all in trouble. I never got it right yet. But if it is God that gives life, if, if it is God that awakens the dead and says, arise, they will come. If God is the one who draws his people, they will come. That should propel us to tell everybody about the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ with the hope that he could do it. See that? should humble us. We should be thankful. There's assurance. There's hope. And finally, God gets all the glory. Not us. God is seen as the all-powerful, Majestic, merciful, and most gracious God. He gets the glory. Psalm 115, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. 
for the sake of your said steadfast love, your faithfulness, your love, your said your steadfast love, and your faithfulness, O Lord, be glory. We have sovereign grace. And look at the sacrificial offering, little verse 47. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Stop right there. Pastor, didn't you not just say that the Father draws us? Did you not just say unless the Father draws, we will not see the glory of Christ? This sounds like an invitation to everyone, to me. The reason it does, because it is. John 3, 16, 15 to 16, whoever believes shall have eternal life. Whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 6, 35, whoever believes shall never thirst. John 6, 37, whoever comes to him, I will not cast out. John 6, 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It's an invitation to you this morning. It's an invitation, a general call that goes out to everyone. Come to Jesus. And in no way, simply because God draws some, that this general call goes out without genuine, honest call to come to Jesus. If you're here this morning, come. It's God's free offer to you of forgiveness and eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be filling Albany County with this. We're the number one post-Christian city in America, Albany. We are the number one Bible illiterate people in America. The apostles, they were arrested, Acts chapter 5. Here's their charge, Acts 5. We strictly charged you. Right, they arrested him because they already charged him. This was their charge. Not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet, here you are, filling Jerusalem with his teaching. Oh, may that be said of us at King's Chapel. Right? What we see here is the heart of God. Not wanting anyone to perish. But just like a father, some of you are fathers, some of you mothers, grandparents, whatever you are, you know Sometimes, none of my kids, of course, but sometimes you look at your child and you know what you're saying doesn't mean a lick. <laughs> they are dead sent on do, set on doing what they have set out to do. And you're looking and you're pleading and you're thinking, they could care less. Does that change my desire and love in me? to call my children to the right path just because I know they're not going to? No. We're dead set in our sin, running away, and yet God offers salvation to everyone. That's his heartbeat. But also here in this text, and you can read this text for yourself, you'll see the balance, beautiful balance, the clear biblical teaching that God is sovereign, his gift of sovereign grace it's his own purpose, his own will, but he's also, we are also responsible for our decisions. Dr. Carson writes this, John, he's talking about this text, is not embarrassed by this theme because unlike many contemporary philosophers and theologians, he does not think that human responsibility is thereby mitigated, not enforced. He's saying he's not embarrassed by this. Thus, he can speak, 
with equal ease of those who look to the Son and believe in Him, this they must do if they are to enjoy eternal life. But this responsibility to exercise faith does not, for John, make God contingent, just dependent upon their decisions. He says, in short, John, the apostle, is quite happy with the position that modern philosophy calls compatibilism. Sovereign response, excuse me, sovereignty of God, the responsibilities in our decision are both true without inconsistency. Okay? You say, well, how is that? It is. That's what the scriptures teach. So when you, by your own volition, by your own choice, ask Christ to come into your life and you repent of your sins and you believe and you rely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you are awakened spiritually. You, 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 you see the glory of God. You see the beauty of Christ. You see the work of Christ on the cross. You captivate, you're captivated by that truth. And you value Christ and you see all that he has done for you as he died on that cross and rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. God gave you those eyes to see. God awakened you to see the irresistible beauty, glory, and greatness of Christ. And you with your whole being said, yes. Yes. You cannot see the beauty and glory of Christ with the spiritual eyes that God gives you and not say, I come. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what we hope today, that you see that today. With your eyes, your spiritual eyes, to see the beauty and the forgiveness and the glory and the great majesty of Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why God brought you here. Look at verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. He himself is the food. He himself, he says, is the sustenance, is the nourishment that that gives you life, that gives you spiritual life. It's this bread that comes down from heaven, verse 49. Your fathers, Jesus said, they ate bread. They ate manna, bread-like substance in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 51. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus makes a contrast. You see that? Your fathers ate that bread and they're dead. Moses is not here. All the people that wandered a long time ago, they're dead. They're in the grave. And by contrast, Jesus offers bread that brings life, which there is no death. I want you to see that. Look at verse 49 and 50 together. 49, he's talking about physical death. They ate manna, they died. They're in the grave. But there is spiritual death, Jesus says in verse 50. The bread that comes down from heaven, the one that I give, is so that one may eat of it and not die. Spiritual life, spiritual life. You got physical death, spiritual death, and what he offers is spiritual life. This bread is not from the earth, it's the bread from heaven. And if you have your Bible, circle the word eat. You may eat of it and die, verse 50. It is in the aorist tense. That's important. I don't usually bring it up, but I want to bring it up today because it's not keep on eating. It's not continuous. It's a once and for all eat. And when you do, when you partake of Christ, once and for all, there's life. He or she will live forever. That's what he's saying. We're going to talk about eating in a minute. The question I have as we finish up this point too is how does Jesus offer, how does Jesus give us This bread, how does he make it available to us? This bread that gives us eternal life. Look at verse 51b. 
the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See that? Is my flesh. Not soma, Greek for body, but sark, S-A-R-X. Give you is my, my flesh. Not my body, but my flesh. Remember chapter 1 of John, prologue. Unlike Matthew and Luke, they go back to his genealogy, Jesus' genealogy on this earth. John goes back to the genealogy of Jesus from eternity. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word, Greek word logos. In the beginning, pointing to Genesis, before creation, before time, preexistent, before creation was the word. The word was means eternal, no beginning, no end. In the beginning, the very beginning before creation was, always existed, was the word. Remember that? And the word was with God, face to face. And then he says, and the word, logos, was God. Theos, enhos, logos. He is, the word is God. Verse 14 of John 1, what does he say? And the word became Sarks, not Soma. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Very important. Now look at this text again in verse 51. He says, the bread I will give. See that? I will give. That's future. If you eat, I will give. For, that points to sacrifice, for, hyper, uh, uh, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. I lay down my life, you know, uh, for the world. Greater love has no one than this, that I lay down my life for his friends. There's a sacrificial aspect of Christ coming for as a substitute, as a sacrifice. Now put this together, okay? Very important. Verse 51, put it together. It's not simply that Jesus gave us his soma, He didn't. He gave us his flesh for us because it wasn't simply his body that was offered. It was his incarnate logos, flesh, that was offered for the life of the world. Very important you see that. Now, if you're a farmer, I am not, but if you are, like many of them were, agricultural background, you would know that wheat and grain and animals and almost anything that you had, almost everything, you had, you rely upon to live had to die so that you would live. The corn, the cow, the wheat, the chicken, all sacrificed themselves so that you can live. Jesus will say, the hour has come. The cross is before me. I am going to die. And he will say, I truly say to you, unless the wheat of grain Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do you see? Jesus gave his incarnate body, his flesh, on the cross for the sins of mankind. But the only way, because the only way to be accepted for the payment of our sins, the only way it could be accepted that someone would die on behalf of, of man would be because of the incarnation. Because Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Only, only someone who is fully man, who is sinless, who, who fulfilled the law of God perfectly, can die for the sins of others. If you died for your sins, it's because you deserved it. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, 
because he was perfect. And only God can forgive sins. Ultimately, even if we sin against each other, ultimately, it's a sin against our Creator. Fully God, fully man. He gives his life, his incarnate life for the world. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to give my life. There's going to come a time. Remember, this is Passover. Every Jewish family in the, in the first Passover was told, get in the house, sacrifice a spotless lamb, shed its blood, put the blood over the doorstep, and when the angel of death comes, when the wrath of God comes against evil down to earth, take cover and shelter under the spotless lamb of God. The day of Passover came, and in every single home, in every single home, either the Egyptians or the Hebrews, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. And those who took shelter under the lamb were spared. Jesus is that lamb of God who gave his life so that we can live. As important as the incarnation is, it is the incarnation and the cross that matters. You know, you could look and admire Jesus. Oh, he's such a great man. He taught us some great things. He led such a nice life. We'll do nothing for you. It is only in taking of the bread, in appropriating by faith, that Christ died as a substitute in your place, will it matter? And because he became a man, fully God and fully man, he can pay that price for you. Isaiah wrote about it 800 years before Jesus even came to earth. He was pierced for our transgressions, for our, in our place. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. All of us, you and me included, like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us turned our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That substitute. He sacrificed as an offering for us. Finally, the satisfying food. This is hard. I need your thinking caps on, okay? They went from grumbling to arguing. <laughs> So the Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They obviously took him literally. I don't think they took him literally in the sense where they're like, you know what, you know what? Get his finger, I'll get his arm. We'll take a bite. Everybody take a piece. I think they took him literally and go, this guy's crazy. What's he teaching us, cannibalism? I mean, how could he say this? There's obviously they were confused. We're not going to bite the guy. But we don't really know what he's saying. <laughs> this is so constant throughout this book. Jesus says, destroy the temple. They're like, really? You're going to destroy this building? He's like, no, it's my body. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's like, really? Climb back into my mother's womb? Jesus says to the woman at the well, I have living water. Really? Give me a cup. Let me get a drink. Like, <laughs> eat your flesh? It, right over their head. Jesus was pointing to something in each one of those cases, including here, something more important, something spiritual, something that was greater. Verse 53. <laughs> so rather than, Jesus just is pressing on me. I love it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. My drink is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. That should give us a clue. He's not talking literally, because how do you go inside the body of Jesus and he comes inside us, right? 
As the living Father sent me, and I, have because, I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live forever. Now, there are some theologians and some people who like to take this teaching, this claim of Jesus, this idea of eating his flesh, drinking his blood, as a reference to the Lord's Supper, communion table. Or even worse, taking it to believe in this Eucharistic meaning on somehow participating in the blood and body of Jesus. It's called transubstantiation, if you've never heard it before. It's taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, as we proceed, let me just say very, very clearly and carefully, I am not, and nor do I like bashing religions, denominations in general, or, or even Catholics per se. Okay, that's not what I'm doing. There's some Catholics and some other people in other denominations who love Jesus, who belong to Jesus, who are his. My issue today is taking this text and making it say something that it does not say. And you say, well, why are you getting so serious about it? Look at verse 53. Actually, yeah, 53. I say to you, unless you eat and drink, you eat the flesh, you drink his blood, you have no life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So unless you're eating and drinking, you're going to hell. So what this means is like really important. It's just standing up and go, oh, oh, I want to have life. I want to be in eternity with Jesus. I want to be forgiven of my sins. Now it's saying I have to eat and drink. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. I need to know what that means. That's the way I take it. So we have to know. So let me just break it down to you. Again, you can talk about it more in your community groups. Let me just give you the obvious first. Throughout this entire discourse, Jesus takes the metaphoric language and the non-metaphoric, and he intertwines them. Okay? He intertwines them. Look at verse 35. And in 48 too, he says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is not saying, I am the loaf of wonder bread for you to come and snack on. If you've got some peanut butter, bring it. Really, come, I am the bread of life. In fact, come to the bread. Anybody take a piece of bread and put it on the counter and say, come to me? Like, it doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> I'm the bread. Obviously metaphoric, okay? Then he explains what that analogy is, what a metaphor is. Look at verse 35 again. I'm the bread of life. Whoever what? Comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me. And he keeps saying this. Verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. So you have the metaphor and the non-metaphor. Come, believe, and trust. Let me show you one more. Verse 40, circle in your Bible, and verse 54. If you, if you take them out, put them together. Verse, I, I did, you don't have to. Verse 40 and verse 54, same discourse. Listen to these words. Verse 40, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Whoever looks to the Son, believes in him, shall have eternal life, I'll raise him up. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I'll raise him up again on the last day. One's metaphor, one's non-metaphor. Both of them talk about eternal life. In fact, right where in the same position, one is metaphoric, one's non. So what does it mean to eat and drink? It says to believe, to trust, to come to Jesus. Jesus used metaphors all the time. I am the door. He's not talking about a piece of wood that you get in and out. I am the vine. He's not talking about a greafy, a green leafy thing that's up and down on a, on a trellis. I am the light of the world. He's not a light bulb. 
right? See, over and over, people are taking him literally, but he's talking metaphorically. He's talking to a, about a spiritual reality, and that's exactly what's going on. They're like, listen, I, I'm, I'm taking this literally. How are we going to eat this guy's flesh? And, and, and it's interesting that, that Jesus says, this is the metaphor, I am the bread. Believe in me, trust in me, come to me. Then he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood. And rather than going back and saying, guys, it's metaphoric. I don't really mean it. It's an analogy. He presses them even more. He takes it one step further. It's a violation of the Mosaic law to drink blood. Right? He's not talking about actually drinking his blood. He's talking metaphoric language. Also, this is not, has anything to do or is not instituting of communion. All right? This is not about communion. It's not about the Lord's Supper. And I'll tell you why. Number one, Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching to Jewish people in the synagogue, and in no way, shape, or form would they have said, oh, communion. It would have never happened. Number two, the institution of the communion of the Lord's Supper hasn't even happened yet. It's not going to happen for chapters later. In fact, John, the apostle, doesn't even mention the institution of the Lord's Supper. You've got to go to Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So obviously he's not pointing to communion. Number three, every place in the New Testament, every place in the New Testament, in the epistles, the letters, every place, in the gospel accounts, the synoptic, every place where the Bible talks about the Lord's Supper and the institution of the Lord's Supper, it is always soma, never, never sarks, never flesh, always the body of Jesus, not the flesh of Jesus, always Verse, two more reasons. Look at verse 63. People just forget this, I guess. And uh, Ricky's going to cover this next week. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help. The words that I've spoken to you are spirits. I mean, get it through your heads. And finally, another important reason why this has nothing to do with communion. Look with me at verse 53 and 54, as I said earlier. It is the eating the feeding of the flesh and blood of Jesus, the feeding of the flesh, the drinking of the blood is unmistakably and inseparably linked to eternal life. There's no way around it. You eat and you drink, you have life. You eat and you drink, you don't have life. That would make taking communion eternal life. That would mean I have to do something to earn it. That violates everything in Scripture. And not only that, it violates Jesus' own words in verse 29. What must we do to have eternal life? What must we do to require, uh, what God requires of us to have eternal life? What does he say? That you believe. So it can't possibly. All throughout this discourse, Jesus makes it clear that the bread from heaven, the true bread that will satisfy our spiritual hunger is given to those who believe, those who look to the Son, those who recognize who He is, not in the abstract way, but in the heart. In the heart. So this idea that it's somehow eating and drinking of His body is just not true. If you think about it, okay, I just want, let me just take this one step further. If you think about it, if you actually had to eat His body, if you actually had to drink His blood, then why not turn the bread and the blood into the body because then you're eating it just like Jesus said and you have eternal life. Do you see how that false teaching just surfaced? Because they did not use proper hermeneutics and understand what this text is saying. They believe that you turn the bread and, and, and somehow um, 
you know, metaphorically, or, or metaphysically, it, it changes. And though it looks like bread, it's really his body. That's what some people teach. Although it looks like blood, it's uh, wine, it really is his body. It's because they say you have to eat them. And it's like, no, Jesus said what you have to do. Believe, trust, look onto, the, onto who he is. Onto the cross. There's a thing called metonym. Metonym. You're like, what is a metonym? Well, you know what? You use it every day. I didn't know it. Metonym is something that is a word or uh, an idea or a, um, a phrase that is used when it means something else, but it's very closely related. I'll give you one. I'm going to Cooperstown this week. I'm really not, but let's just say I said that. I'm going to Cooperstown this week. My wife's going, really? I didn't know that. Uh, I'm not. But if I said I'm going to Cooperstown, I probably mean I'm going to Baseball Hall of Fame. I'm not going to the town, Cooperstown, but I'm going to Hall of Fame. I'm going to Cooperstown this week. That's what we talk about, Hall of Fame. Right? Sometimes we talk about Hollywood, you know, those Hollywood people. Are we talking about the village, the city of Hollywood? No, we're talking about what? The, the movie industry. It's similar. Well, in the New Testament, the word blood is used as a minimum. It, it, is, it is used to talk about, graphically speaking, of Christ's death on the cross. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, pay careful attention to the elders, to the pastors. Pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you an overseer. Care for the church of God, which Jesus obtained with his own blood. He's talking about his cross. Hebrews 9, Jesus entered into a holy place, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means by his own blood. Talking about his death. Remember, uh, I think this was last year or two years ago, we did a series on the atonement. Leviticus says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make altar, on the altar, to make atonement for your soul. God gives us the blood to make atonement for our souls, to, to forgive us of our sins. He says, For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life that's in the creature that is sacrificed on our behalf. One life is given. It's not just the blood that gives life. It is the blood that's sacrificed, that dies on our behalf. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about appropriating by faith the reality and truth of his crucifixion, his dying in our place for our sins, taking and absorbing the wrath of God for us and offering us eternal life through trusting in him. Okay? That's what he's talking about. In those passages. Let's be real practical. Let me give you a couple of practical things and then we'll close. Number one, eating and drinking, eating the flesh, drinking the blood, that metaphor is meant to show us that we are hungry people. And when God awakens us and we see a thirst for him and we have a thirst and a hunger for spiritual things, to see him, to love him, to cling to him, we run to the bread of life. We're hungry, number one. Number two, the eating and drinking metaphor is meant to show us that we are to partake of Christ. He becomes part of us. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory, the scripture teaches us. Food is useless unless it's eaten. So also spiritual truth means nothing until it's internalized in the heart. The eating and drinking metaphor is meant to show us that we are to trust him. How many people know something, uh, take a curdled milk or bad meat and eat it? You trust and believe that what you're eating will be good for you. And eating and drinking show us the metaphor that it's personal. There's no such thing as substituting eating. I wish there was. 
but there isn't. Eat that cheeseburger for me, please. You know, it doesn't work that way. We hunger for forgiveness. He's the bread of life. He becomes part of us. He dwells within us by the work of the Spirit. He's the bread of life. We ought to trust Him and believe in Him as we eat the bread of life. And it's personal. You need to make a decision to turn from you and to trust the bread of life. It's not so much that this verse is point to the communion. It points beyond communion to the cross of Calvary. Family and friends, the scripture is absolutely crystal clear. God gave us the Old Testament sacrifice as a picture. As a picture. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And God declared that animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were insufficient to save us, was insufficient to forgive us. Hebrews 10. In these sacrifices in the temple every year is a reminder of sin. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Why? The reason that animal sacrifices were insufficient because it lacked identity. It lacked the identity between the offering and the one who was doing the offering. Animal sacrifices could never atone for human sin and rebellion. When the priest laid hands on that, in the Old Testament on that animal and he confessed his sins, he confessed the sins of his people, it, it, was, it was symbolically transferring guilt onto the animal. He was sent out. One was sent out and one was sacrificed. It pointed to Jesus who is the better and the greater sacrifice who in his incarnation took on humanity identifying with us yet without sin so that he can atone for our sins. Every priest, the Bible says, stands daily offering repeated sacrifice in the Old Testament can never take away sin but when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sin. One time, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Family, because Jesus is both God and man, the shedding of his blood was able to pay the price for our sins through his sinless life and his substitutionary death. The cross is the self-substitution of God. God himself and Jesus Christ paying the price. And the only way that we can deal with cosmic sin, cosmic evil, cosmic debt for our sin is for the God of the cosmos to come and to sacrifice himself and pay the ransom to set us free. Have you eaten of the bread of life? This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Family, friends, if you don't know Jesus this, this morning, I implore you, come to the bread of life. Without him, you will not live. You will be separated from God from all eternity, but Jesus offers you. Whosoever will come, come to Jesus Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Believe that he is the bread. Believe that he gave his life so that you can have life. Invite him into your life. Say yes to Christ. And brothers and sisters, if you have done that, let that be an encouragement to you. Let it humble you. Let it propel you on mission that Christ died for your sins. Go and tell the world. Whosoever comes will have eternal life. Father, Thank you that you sent your son 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your life. You, you, you came down out of heaven's glory. You set aside momentarily infinite glory to come down into this broken world, this, this broken, twisted, jacked up, sinful place. Lived a perfect life. Died an atoning death. Shedding your blood. Your broken body. And then three days later, <sighs> glorious resurrection from the grave. Declaring that forgiveness is available, the sacrifice has been accepted. Come to Jesus. Lord, there are some here that need to come to Jesus. Just bow your heart and say, I'm yours, Lord Jesus. You died and rose for me. Let me eat of the bread.